So the reading is from Philippians chapter 3, verses 1 to 14. Finally, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. It is no trouble for me to write the same thing to you again, and it is a safeguard for you. Watch out for those dogs, those evildoers, those mutilators of the flesh. For it is we who are the circumcision, we who serve God by his spirit, <clears throat> who boast in Christ Jesus and who put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reason for such confidence. If someone else thinks they have reason to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law of Pharisee, as for zeal persecuting the church, as for righteousness based on the law, faultless. But whatever were the gains uh, to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, uh, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God based on faith. I want to know Christ, yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participate in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection of the dead. Not that I have already obtained all this or have arrived at my goal, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it. But one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining towards what is ahead, I press on towards the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenwards in Christ Jesus. Thank you, Paul. The word of God. Uh, when I mentioned to Sharon that I'd asked uh, Paul if he uh, would read for us this morning, she said, do you think he's qualified? And, um, of course, when I asked Dr. Paul Tyson, he sent me a lot of material for my sermon. Very humbly. He's a very humble uh, man. Uh, uh, would love to sit down and, and listen to him for an hour and a half on this passage, um, but instead you're going to hear me for about 20. <laughs> uh, so uh, let's have a look at this wonderful passage. Uh, we're between series at the moment, and so this reading is one of the readings from the lectionary. Today, um, Christians uh, all around the world would be hearing a homily, a message on, on this powerful passage. And of course, um, it's difficult not to um, think about um, what happened overnight in, in Israel this morning. Um, for me, uh, you know, I've, I've got a personal con concern there with, with family on the, on the Jewish side of Israel. But of course... Uh, there's also the reality that scripture points us to that I have eternal brothers and sisters um, in the faith in Christ in Israel too and 
Uh, the vast majority of them are Arabs and Palestinians. So it's complicated, isn't it? But we do pray for the peace of that country. Pray for the peace of the world in Jesus. One of the central concerns of Scripture runs underneath the passage that Paul read for us this morning. It's a passage uh, that comes from a letter that Paul the Apostle writes to the believers in the city of Philippi. And um, Philippi, if you know anything about it, uh, was a, a Roman uh, sort of outpost city in, uh, in Macedonia. And so it was almost like a little bit of Rome outside of Italy, as it were. A lot of Roman soldiers there. And the cult of the emperor was powerful in Philippi. So uh, when we read scripture say that Jesus Christ is Lord, that's important, that's powerful to us, that's central to our faith. In part, when Scripture says those words, it's a response to the fact that in parts of the empire at the time, people were uh, exhorted to, encouraged to, sometimes uh, threatened to say those words about Caesar, about the emperor. And so this was uh, a strong dimension of the cultural context in which the believers in Philippi were dealing with. They were dealing with uh, a kind of counterclaim and many of them suffered great persecution as a result. And Paul, when he writes uh, the letter to uh, the church in Philippi, can identify with them because guess where he's writing from, as he often is? Prison. <laughs> He's in jail himself as a result of persecution for his faith. And he draws the attention of those believers to uh, what I've already mentioned is a central uh, topic in the scriptures. And that is the topic of worship. How should we live our lives. I remember many times growing up listening to my dad's preaching, he'd comment on the fact that the word worth and the word worship are the same at their root. To worship something or someone is about ascribing worth to them. And so the Bible makes a case throughout its many books that we are worshipping creatures we are always in the business of ascribing worth to someone or to something. And the Bible, whether it's in the New Testament or the Old, is really concerned with what or who we ascribe that worth to. There's a book that came out uh, in recent years that was sort of amongst the Christian bestsellers list. And... Um, called You Are What You Love. And uh, the author makes a point, which I think is really central to what I've been talking about, the theology of scripture around worship. Uh, he says, our wants and longings and desires are at the core of who we are as individuals. They are the wellspring 
from which our actions and behaviours flow. According to that definition of worship, we're always worshipping something, aren't we? We're always worshipping someone. The, the substance, the content of our life will be an act of worship to something or someone. There was a story in the paper uh, a couple of weeks ago about a young real estate agent on this side of the city who found herself in some trouble uh, because she uh, was guardedlessly, unguardedly, that's the word, unguardedly human <laughs> in her interactions online. I don't know if you saw this story. She lost her job as a real estate agent on the north side of Brisbane for making some disparaging comments about people online on the basis of the fact that they probably didn't even own property in the neighbourhood <laughs> that she sold real estate. And that, uh, in her disparaging comments, she went on to say, um, she probably pays more in income tax than these people she's having a go at even earn. Now, why I said she's unguardedly human, <laughs> we can all see the problem with uh, statements like that. Her employer definitely saw the problem in it because uh, they fired her. But really what she did was just say out loud what was on the inside for so many of us. It might not be the exact sort of framework of worship. We might not be particularly sort of attaching our sense of what matters in this world to wealth or real estate. There's a chance some of us are. We're Australians after all. But that might not be our particular religion. But we've all got... And it's difficult to say for us as Christians, it might be a competing religion within us, but we've all got a religious life that's based on our personal values that may or may not align as clearly as it should with Jesus. For some of us, it's about being um, the most beautiful. For some of us, it's about being the most wanted. For some of us, and here's where it gets tricky, and here's where Paul touches down in this passage, it's about how we are before God. Paul talks about that in terms of self-righteousness. Paul is obviously an ascriber to a different type of religion, to the typical religions of Australia, sport, real estate, the body beautiful, career success, because we read at the beginning of the passage that uh, Dr Tyson, I'm going to have to differentiate between the Pauls somehow, <laughs> Apostle Paul and Brother Paul, uh, we read at the beginning of the passage that was uh, shared with us this morning a ground zero for what is happening next. Paul says, further, my brothers and sisters rejoice. I'm saying that as a person in prison, speaking to a persecuted community uh, hundreds of kilometres away, rejoice. And you know what? He meant it. <laughs> He wasn't being, uh, he wasn't being uh, facetious. He wasn't being uh, disingenuous. Paul meant it when he said, we Christians in chains, in persecution, need to rejoice. At other points in the canon of Paul's writings, he uh, sort of fills this out a little bit. And here we can read in Colossians 3 
what Paul means when he exhorts his brothers and sisters to rejoice in the face of their persecution. Let the message of Christ dwell amongst you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom through doing these things, through psalms, through hymns, through songs from the Spirit, singing to God with gratitude in your heart. See, for Paul, joy (laughs) is something that is done as much as something that is felt. And that's one of the reasons why we sing as Christians. We come together and sing, even if it's countercultural for us as Australians. It's definitely challenging for me as an Australian male at times. If you've ever looked over during worship and thought, gee, he looks awkward. Yes, it is awkward. But like so many of you in this room, I have experienced over time that when I get beyond myself and set praise on my lips, speak out the goodness of God, even, dare I say it, sing it, even sometimes when I'm feeling particularly pastory, raising my hands, something happens, doesn't it? You're reminded. (laughs) It's like the Spirit activates that in you again. Now, I don't want to sort of over make this point because it is tricky for us as Australians, maybe particularly Australian males, but we've got to find some way of getting praise on our lips. We've got to find some way of rejoicing. Paul sets us in that direction time and time again, and here he does it in Philippians. He goes on, Let the message of Christ dwell among you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom. Oh, I've read that. So he goes, sorry, watch watch out, Paul says, uh, back to Philippians, for those evildoers, for those dogs, those mutilators of the flesh, For it is we, the community of Christ, who are the circumcision. We serve God by the Spirit, who boast in Christ Jesus and who put no confidence in the flesh. So verses 2 and 3 of the passage this morning, we read in them a warning in the strongest terms against what uh, the NIV calls confidence in the flesh. And this is basically the idea that we can attain some sort of rightness before God through religious observance. Paul, as a Jew who's communicating to people living in the Gentile world, is looking for some sort of common language uh, that uh, this is pretty much the second worst word in this passage, but in many parts of the world continues to be a swear word, to call someone a dog. We can read a couple of times in the Psalms where dogs are an example of a creature that uh, has ill intent, that can stalk a person, that is unclean. And of course, in a city like Philippi, there's no plumbing. People are throwing their waste out the windows. Dogs are scuttling around the city of Philippi, eating human refuge, refuge, refuse. Paul's trying to paint for the Philippians a picture of the worst thing that you can do, the worst thing that you can do is to have a religion, a way of life that is about confidence in your own way of doing things before God. Uh, He points to circumcision there because there were some people going around telling Christians who were Gentiles that they'd be better Christians if they were circumcised. And can you believe it? People were going for that. Uh, must have been hard times. Uh, 
But people were falling for this idea that God would be somehow more pleased with them if they were circumcised as Gentiles. And Paul is crook about it. He uses the strongest language that he can. He goes on to talk about... Sorry, I'm having some technological issues here. To talk about a counter position. Um, He explains that he is someone who is well accustomed to thinking about righteousness before God in these terms because of his personal history. If someone else uh, thinks that they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh, he says in verse 4, I have more. I was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews in regard to the law. I was a Pharisee for zeal. I persecuted the church. I was right, in terms of righteousness based on the law, I was faultless. But he says, I now consider all of that loss for the sake of Christ. He's saying, actually, those things can be an impediment to us. Our external practices, the things that we do in order to try and prove ourselves before God, can actually be what stops us from gaining Christ. He goes on, what is more, I consider everything that I've done without Christ a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ as my Lord. So we've seen two things so far in the passage. For one, the strongest possible warning, uh, calling uh, people who were trading in this kind of religion dogs, the strongest possible warning against what he talks about in terms of a religion of the flesh, a faith that justifies itself to God by the things that it does. And then secondly, he exhorts the Philippians to grasp the thing that is of surpassing value. So to that first point, Paul is warning us in the strongest terms through this passage to guard our hearts against a kind of religion of the flesh, against trying to justify ourselves to ourselves, to others, to God, on the basis of our external practices, on the basis of our personal righteousness. As soon as we see ourselves doing that, as soon as we might catch ourselves at risk of doing that, warning lights should be flashing on the dash for us. This is the most detestable religion for God, Paul says. What can we do about that? I was having a think about, you know, a point of application, uh, because this is the first sort of point of the sermon to... uh, to to guard against this kind of religion. I think we need to give one another permission to call us out for self-righteousness. Like carrying a little card around and giving it to people and sort of saying, Christy, how did you know that uh, you were going to be one of the people to call me out for my self-righteousness? Graham, actually, Graham, you might need a few more. (laughs) Actually, now I'm going to, you're going to need to give me one. Christy, Graham, if you sense self-righteousness in me, can you, can you let me know about it? Because Paul's saying, that's as far from God as I could be, actually. 
let me know about it. We need to invite others to keep us accountable that we're not practising this kind of religion. To the second point, how might we grasp this surpassing value that Paul talks about? Out of all the things we could pursue in life, Paul says, there is one that is just far more valuable than any of the others that, that, that puts the others... Com- the others are worthless compared to it. And that is, in the language of Paul, to gain Christ. How can we gain Christ? The surpassing value that we can gain in, or grasp in life. Well, in a sense, we don't grasp it. And that's the point that Paul is making. He's making a connection between these two things because he's saying there is a sense in which you can't grasp the righteousness that would qualify you for relationship with God. Paul speaks about this as the act, as it were, of gaining Christ, of grasping Christ. And I love this turn of phrase. I want to know Christ. Yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow attaining resurrection from the dead. Paul is saying over anything in the world that we might grasp, we grasp the surpassing value. We gain Christ by coming to know him. I might get the team up if, if that's all right. We gain that thing of surpassing value. We gain Christ by coming to know him. It's tricky when we think about it in regard to this, this idea that the shape of our lives, the form and the substance of our lives, the way we spend our time, the way we spend our money is an act of worship. And yet Paul's sort of saying any of those individual acts aren't the things that get you to that thing of surpassing value, that person of surpassing value, Jesus. It's kind of intention, isn't it? That our lives should look like we love Jesus. But our relationship to God isn't based on the fact that our lives look like we love Jesus. What does it mean to know Jesus if it's not about something external like being circumcised or you know which confessions you adhere to which emails you subscribe to which preachers you listen to what kind of songs you sing That's part of the challenge that Paul 
lays at our feet. It says, you'll know Jesus when you get to the end of yourself and you realise He's all you've got. That's the connection Paul's making between this strong warning against self-righteousness and this exhortation to know Christ. If there's any chance... you think you're still in control if there's any chance that when you go to do something for Jesus you're not doing it out of an awareness of the fact that it's all grace then you just need to lean a little bit closer into him know him a little better and and Paul doesn't wrap this all up really cleanly for us he says I haven't got it all worked out but I I'm set on this course my life is going to be about this thing that I have come to see by God's grace is of surpassing value and that is him that's him in practical terms this can have a shape it can look like going to the gospels how we, uh, that's sort of the benchmark for who Jesus is. You can have a personal relationship with Jesus for sure. You can, um, you can listen to great preaching and great podcasts. You can, you can have revelations of who Jesus is. But if they don't line up with the Jesus that we read about in Matthew, Mark, Luke and John, you might be a little bit off track. So we can come to know Jesus through the Gospels, but we wouldn't read the Bible because that qualifies us somehow we would read those four books to come to know him how else could we come to know him when the Holy Spirit testifies to us that there are people in our midst who know him saints with whom we're in community we can know Christ through his people and of course we can pray Could we stand up? Because that's what I'm going to do. <laughs> I'm going to pray. Paul encourages the Christians in Philippi. I think he encourages us through time with his words. Let the Bible read you for a moment. Is the knowledge of Christ the thing that is of surpassing worth in your life? That's a challenging question for you this morning (laughs) because it's easy to say, actually, I don't know if that stacks up. I don't know if I spend as much time pursuing Jesus as I do on my career or serving my family or whatever. Jesus would say, that's okay. The only thing to be done from this point is to walk on together, to receive forgiveness, to receive grace. 
God, thank you for the freedom of the good news. Thank you that you love us. And you choose us. And you forgive us. Holy Spirit, I pray that uh, a revelation of this grace would continue to wash through our hearts and through our minds. That we would be a people whose very life springs out of the soil of forgiveness, springs out of the soil of grace, springs out of the soil of love. If this morning uh, we're carrying guilt or shame, hand that over to him. Apologize. Ask for forgiveness. Ask Jesus, would you walk with me? Would you help me to sort this mess out? Would you help me to break this addiction? Would you help me to reconcile this relationship? I want to know you. Lord Jesus, we want to know you. Reveal yourself to us, we pray. Amen.